something that we're doing new right now is uh, we're having to be both parent and teachers for a lot of us. Um, it seems like every week there's something new that you have to do in light of this season and, and the crisis we're in. There's something that is unfamiliar to us. And right now, the big one is we're recognizing that um, unfortunately, because schools are starting to kind of say, hey, look, the rest of the year we're not doing anything. So parents are making peace with the fact that they're going to have to get their kids to the finish line of the school year. And I think collectively, that's why we all agree. And I think there's a petition going around to raise teachers' salaries to about $1.5 million per hour and free coffee for life. But, <laughs> but uh, and we can all put some flame emojis on that and a lot of love and thumbs up. If you want to comment right now for your teachers, do it. Because I'm telling you, I'm not a teacher and I also don't have to teach my two-year-old because there she's two. But we do try to help her learn some things. And I've learned how difficult that is. It, not just because she's two, but because they're kids and you don't always know how it's going. Just the other day, I was trying to teach her um, about the different features in her face. So I was saying, Adeline, you know, show me your eyes. And she points to her eyes. Where's your mouth? Where's your ears? She points to those things. And at, all of a sudden, in the middle of what I thought was like a pretty good lesson, I thought we were doing fine. She all of a sudden like kind of seizes up. She stops breathing. She starts shaking. And she starts, you know, looking past me and she's not breathing. And I'm like, I stand up. I'm like, Adeline, breathe, breathe. Talk to me. What's going on? What's going on? She's just shaking like this. And I have no idea what's going on. I'm like, I'm at the point where I'm pacing around the, the, the room like, Adeline, breathe. And it was only a few seconds. Uh, but for me, it was like, you know, as a parent, you just feel like, what's going on? It feels like eternity. And she stops and she goes, Dada, muscles, muscles, muscles. And I'm, I'm like, this is, this is it. I'm never, I'm not doing this again because the <laughs> lost in translation, man, I thought I was like, she's, here she is, right? She is trying to show me her strength. She's trying to show me like, this is her strength. She's strong. She's healthy, right? That was the symbol for like what looked like to me a conniption. And I'm like thinking, you know, it's a medical thing going on. There's some sort of crisis going on. We had the same experience. And we had two completely different responses to it. And so I don't, I gave up on teaching uh, for the rest of her life. Uh, but this is no different than I think people's response to this crisis. There are, there are people that are walking into this thing and they're seeing God do exactly this, renew. They're seeing him renew stuff. They're seeing this renewal of maybe even just the environment, you know, their values, their priorities are being reorganized in a good way. Their budgets are getting reorganized in a good way. It's trimming the fat. There's good things. There's people are seeing it right now in this crisis. But at the same time, there's people going through it and stuff's not getting renewed. I mean, we've know, we know this about crisis, that even in, our, even in our past, in our life, we've gone through things or we've seen people go through things. And, and one person goes through that thing and they come out the other end with a healthier or a, a greater relationship with their spouse. Somebody else goes through a crisis and it didn't. The marriage didn't get renewed. It didn't get stronger. And then they, they you know, we, we wonder, why, what was the difference? They both had the same thing. They both went through crisis. Why did one go the other way? Well, this is, this is what we know about crisis. And this is what is true. Crisis doesn't automatically renew you. It's not, it's not like crisis does the renewal. Crisis reveals, crisis illuminates, crisis shows you who you really are in the first place. It comes out and then there's a moment, then there's a point where you can either do something with it yourself and try to fix it yourself 
And, and then as Christians, we believe that actually we have the opportunity to take what comes out, what probably comfort was cooking all along inside of us, and we can give it, we can actually give it to God. And he's the one that renews. He's the one that heals. He's the one that fixes. What gets revealed gets renewed if we give it to God. And some of us, what gets revealed becomes more wreckage. And I just believe this. I believe right now, some of you are in this place where stuff's coming out and you're just right here. You haven't decided what you're gonna do with it yet, but it's come out and you're kind of, maybe you're tuning in for the first time because you're kind of leaning in, you're kind of looking upward and you're kind of seeking out the Lord like, God, is it you? Is it, you know, that's what sometimes happens is, is there's a bit of a renewal of interest in God because everything else is kind of quiet. You know, Psalm 38 puts it like this, that it's our brokenness that makes us more aware of God's nearness. David writes, God is near to the brokenhearted. And there's a lot of people right now. I'm just, I'm not gonna get up here and talk about this renewal stuff and not deal honestly with where you're at. I'm supposed to deliver truth in love and love means I'm thinking about where you're at. And I'm gonna be honest with you. Some of you are hearing this, you're seeing this and you're like, he's gonna talk about that right now? Like, that's not me. I'm, I'm just broken. And I wanna encourage you that like in your brokenness, what happens often is God appears very near. But this is what we know about God. Like he's near to you, whether you're fine or whether you're, you're broken, whether things are comfortable or uncomfortable. He's the nearest thing to you at any given point in your life. But here's what happens in brokenness. Things get quiet because things stop working. Things stop making noise in your life. And so here's what happens. You begin to realize the truth of something that's been there all along. Like God has been with you all along from the beginning to the middle and right now he's with you. And the, the difference is now you can hear him. Now you can hear him. You can realize he's calling you. He's saying, I got a plan for you. I can give purpose to your pain. You got to give it to me though. You have to give me what's being revealed in your life and I can renew it. And so just like a doctor, you don't go in and you don't say, hey, look, I read WebMD. So I know what I am dealing with. I'm here to just kind of confirm that you agree and then have you do the work. Uh, no, no, this is different. You have to go in, right? If you want something healed from God that's getting revealed, you have to ask him to lead, to take it, to do it his way, not your way. You have to trust God's way. And the, one of the areas that I am convinced God is once wanting to renew in your life that he's already, can already kind of see this happening is this, this focus that leaves ourselves and goes on to other people. I would call it selflessness. It's this selfless compassion. And I'm telling you on the back end of this crisis, because eventually like, you know, eventually, eventually we're going to get through this. Like eventually, whether it's, you know, the, the virus is just kind of, kind of, you know, spread and, and whatever we're going to have, whether it be vaccines or herd immunity, whatever. Eventually, it's not going to be around forever. I mean, nothing's new under the sun. Stuff comes and goes. Eventually, we're going to get through it. Eventually, we'll be back at a Packer game somewhere. We'll be back in here eventually, right? That's going to happen. On the back end of it, though, on the back end of that crisis and that pain, there's, there's sometimes there's a worse pain for you, and it's the pain of regret. It's going through something that hurt, and then wishing you would have done it different and knowing you could have. The reason regret hurts so much is it's a self-inflicted wound. Like stuff that happens to you is hard, but stuff that hurts that you know you kind of, man, I caused that one. That hurts. And I, I believe everybody in a time of crisis, they want to have stood up and made a difference. 
They want to have stood up and made a difference, been generous, been compassionate, been selfless in it. And I don't, I don't want God, I, I really believe, I want God to re- renew that in your life. So let's let God define selflessness. Let's let God define what compassion is from his word today. And I want to do that because there's, I, I want to be honest with you, it's really easy for selfishness to masquerade as selflessness. That's a very easy thing to do. So let's go right to the, one of the first attributes of what true selfless compassion is from Jesus' words. This is actually Jesus talking in Matthew chapter six. So let's go to it. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others for you will lose the reward. You can go ahead and circle that from your father in heaven. Next, next slide here is when you give to someone in need, Jesus is still talking, don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. You, you know, reward again. And the last one here is, but when you give in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Be very vigilant about that. Give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will, there it is again, reward you. It's kind of strange. It's kind of like God's like, listen, I want to make sure you get out of, get something out of your giving. Like out of your selflessness, I want you to think about what you're going to get out of your selflessness. It's kind of a weird thing. And that's not what exactly what he's saying, but he's obviously concerned and he wants you to be about what's going to happen, not just to the person you're giving to, but what's going to happen to your life when you lean into giving. He's obviously concerned about it. And we know from other passages in scripture, like there's nothing void and null if you give a gift and people find out about it, or if you give publicly, that's not something that like nullifies. I mean, there's wonderful godly people and gifts and generosity and compassion that was given publicly in the Bible. That's not, it's not, that's not the point of this. But what giving secretly does is it stress tests, stress tests your reason for giving. And this is what's true about that. Your reason is your reward. The reason you decide to do something, that's your reward. Your reason for giving is your reward. And let me tell you something. If your reason is to get other people's attention, that's not a reward. I mean, if you're, if you're a success or, you're, or what you think is, is uh, what defines you is what other people think of you, you will always be thirsty for their attention. And if you live by their compliments, right? We know this, you'll die by their criticism. That's not a reward. So if you're gonna give and do something generous and it's because you want people to see and think of you as generous, that's your reward. That's, that's literally all you're gonna get. And that is actually, to be honest with you, that's not even a reward in and of itself. Because let me tell you something. If you're trying to get people to think you're okay or you're good or whatever, listen to me. God loved you long before they assessed you as lovable. Like, you understand that? Like long before someone decided whether or not you're so generous that you're lovable, God loved you. God already decided you're worth loving. You were worth going to the cross 2,000 years ago. You don't need someone to assess you as lovable. Listen, God does not compare you to who you compare you to. So if you're trying to stack yourself up with your generosity, look, that is not a reward. Why are you even trying to do that? This this is the other uh, truth about um, the reward piece is that um, there's actually something better than even any, anything you can get from this world. There's actually something that is spiritually more significant and more rewarding. Let me tell you something. When you, when you give anonymously, what you're kind of doing is you're kind of saying like, God, that one was for you. 
Like that, that what I just did, that was for you. Because you're not going to get anything. They don't know it was you. And, and what's going to happen when they, when they receive that gift? At some point, they're going, I have no idea where this came from. It's going to inevitably make them think, God, you know, is there someone out there? Is there someone out there looking, for me, looking out for me? That's what they're going to think. And that's the truth that God is. <laughs> and he's going to get the reward. So you kind of do it anonymously and go, that one was for you, God. And here's what's kind of crazy about that. He's going to get the credit for something that actually he owns anyway, right? I mean, like who, who gave him, who gave you the gift that you gave to that person or the, the generous amount of time or energy or whatever you gave? Who gave you the energy to do that? God, you're just, you're just managing it. So he's actually getting the rightful credit. And, and that is, let me tell you how rewarding it is though. It's so rewarding when you can do something and, and in a way you know is totally for God. It's not for anything else. Here's an example of how rewarding that is. Um, secretly doing good things is, is like a superfood for your soul. Doing things for the Lord alone, like just for his glory, for him to get credit, it is, it is like superfood. Here's how I know that. Secret sin, you ever, you ever deal with secret sin? I have. You ever live two lives, double lives? Doesn't that hollow you out from the inside? Isn't that like just, uh, it's like a, it fillets you from the inside to live two lives, to, have, to deal with something that you know is wrong in secret. If you're sitting on the couch right now next to people you love and there is a, some sin in your life, something bad that is habitual and you're doing, but no one knows right now, like even as I'm saying that, it kind of like takes your breath away. You're like, this is miserable and awful. And let me tell you something, in the same way that secret sin, secret bad, secret evil, in the same way that hollows a person's soul out from the inside, I'm telling you, secret good, like secret generosity, secret things that you do just because you want to worship and bring glory and honor to God, there's something about it that God rewards, he gives you his presence in a way that I can't really describe and it's better than money because we know money's not happiness. It's not like the reward is money. People have money all the time and they're unhappy. This is, look, learn to crave the roar of heaven over the, the, the golf clap of humanity. I mean, just learn to crave. I mean, <laughs> you, what's the worst that can happen is, is like you end up giving, giving away so much, right? That really you're, you're out of some stuff and it's like you were doing it all for the Lord. It's like when you get, when you get before God, and you have this moment where you're in front of them. You're kind of going like, look, Lord, I, this was all for you. All of it was for you. Even the stuff that I lost that I needed was for you. This is the, this is the, this is the way I put it here. Do your best work in secret. I mean, how cool would that be if like you go to before the Lord at the end of your life and your best stuff, your best stuff, your, your best work of love and grace and compassion was for him because he got all the credit. Do your best work in secret. That's what I want to do. This is the, uh, one of the reasons why I, most of my, and this isn't, I'm not going to do a sermon on tithing, but most of my giving in both time, energy, and, and money that I give, you know, the volunteer stuff, that when I volunteer do things, most of it is, goes through the church. And, and here's why. It's because if I show up at something and I serve and do something, got my name on it, that's one thing. You know, people might be like, oh man, you're so generous with your time or your energy or whatever. But um, if I show up and it's got like a church on it, like people see the church as like the body of Christ on earth, right? In a good way. They're like, oh, that's a church. That's, that's God's people. Like I, lo- I love like hiding and eclipsing myself in that. So like most, I give to other organizations. I give even directly to people in need. I do it personally. I, we all do that, right? 
But most of it goes through the church. And that's partly because I just, I want to hide behind the glory and the honor of giving God credit for my compassion or anything I do that's, that's, that's selfless. So that's why I do it. Here's the next one. I want to give you this. This is Jesus' brother. This is James. Here's the next attribute. James says this. Um, it's a passage here. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anybody? This is kind of a, a famous verse here uh, for Christians, that last one, where it deals with the tension between work and faith. And, uh, and, and we know this, James talks about this, the whole Bible <laughs> talks about this, that faith is a gift. Like you can't earn that by your works, your deeds. Um, but what James is saying is that the deeds, the work is kind of the facts of the faith. Like it's the evidence for the faith. It's not saying it earned faith. I mean, if God saves, guess what? You didn't do anything for it. If God, if Jesus is your Lord and savior, you can't save yourself. You couldn't work your way to that salvation. Jesus is the savior. So we know that works don't save us. But what James is saying is it's the facts of the faith. It's the evidence of the faith. And this is what he says. This is an example. He actually give it, gives an example of the, this is the next slide here. Yeah, he says this. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. Now, hang on. That's super common in the old, in, because the reality is, is there was, <laughs> there was a lot of people in need. In the ancient world, uh, not, there was the aristocrats or the kings and their family and friends that had a lot of stuff, and then everybody else had nothing. Okay, that's how, that's how it was. There was no thriving middle class in the ancient world. So they lived actually a lot like most of the world today. And it's hard for us to relate to this in America because we don't live like most of the world. If you don't know exactly how many articles of clothing you have in your closet right now, um, most of the world doesn't live that way. Um, you know, most of the world knows like I got this jacket and I got these shoes, I got these pants and I share these shirts with the rest of my siblings. Like that's, most of the world knows exactly how many things they own. They don't have a closet full of clothes. Um, they don't have a closet full of clothes that they just, oh, I didn't realize these. I forgot to wear these this year. I'm going to give them away to Goodwill or whatever. That's not how most of the world lives. Most of the world knows exactly what they have. And in the ancient world, if you want a shirt, you want a jacket that you're going to wear to keep you warm, you probably got to kill an animal for it or find somebody who can kill an animal and put that little fur thing together for you. It's, this is not like a, out of surplus. So he says, suppose you see a brother or sister has no food or clothing. Here's what he says. And you just say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm. It's this wishing well, like eat well, I wish you well. That's basically what this in the ancient world was trying to say. Like, I wish, I hope, my, my thoughts are with you. I'm thinking of you. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. <laughs> what good does that do? And then he says this, this is the next slide here. Faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It's dead and useless. Basically, there is no such thing as dead faith and alive faith. You either have faith from God, that's a gift that you didn't earn, you didn't do works for, that is producing useful things like generosity and compassion to other people selflessly, or you don't. And the kind of selflessness we're talking about here is stuff that's not out of your surplus. This isn't like out of things that aren't gonna pinch or hurt a little bit. This is stuff that honestly, it's gonna cost you something. And that's, that's the audience for this text is the, when he's talking about giving away things, doing something, he's talking about something that actually is going to, it's going to cost you and real faith, the facts of real faith do that. And it's useful. It's not just useful to the person you're giving something to. It's useful 
for you. Like it's, it's good. It, there's a reward. That's what we talked, that's what Jesus, Jesus talked about. There's a reward for it. It's useful for you and for the person. So this is maybe way, the way James would put it. Um, uh, start being the answer to your prayers. Start, start being the, be the answer to your prayers. Let me tell you something. Nowhere in the Bible does it say like, don't pray. Like don't stop praying. Like we should pray without ceasing. Like without ceasing, we should pray, right? Don't stop telling people you're praying for them. And prayer is absolutely the most powerful thing you can do. It's like the most, you're talking to God. Is there anything more powerful than that? So prayer is powerful. It's important. We ought to do it. But let me say this. What James is saying is if the reason you tell somebody like, I'll pray for your need, I'll pray for that. If the motive behind it is because you don't want to do the harder work of feeling the sacrificial pinch of compassionately and selflessly giving or serving them, let me tell you something, uh, that's called selfishness. And don't you think God knows? Like, don't you think God knows? Like, that's why, that's why you just told that person you're gonna pray for him. It's because that little nudge I gave you to do something about it, you don't wanna do it. And, and so here's what I'm gonna say is like, honestly, James is telling us God's response to that little prayer you just prayed is you. Go do something, be the answer to the prayer. Okay, the last one I want us to think about here is that gratitude, gratitude is fuel for our giving. Uh, this is so important. Let me, let me go to the verse. It's in Romans chapter 12. Paul writes this. He says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Why give your bodies to God? Why give physically, like physically everything about me, my whole person, why give it to God in, in, this, in, this, uh, in this kind of sacrificial way? because of all he has done for you. Other translations say in view, so focusing on in view of all that God has done for you, all of his mercies. Let them, let your bodies be a living and holy sacrifice. Basically a living sacrifice is like a living killing. Be constantly living and killing your desires, your wants, your comforts. Uh, this is kind of the only sacrifice that's always trying to crawl off the altar, at least if it's me. Like, I'm always like, I don't want to do it. It's like, hey, get back on there. This is a living sacrifice in view or because of all God has already done for me. And then he says this, uh, this is the kind of sacrifice that he will find acceptable. And he says this, this is truly the way to worship him. Other translations say, this is your true and proper worship. What, what that phrase there, what he's saying is that to not do this, to not give your entire life as a living sacrifice to others, to God, to not do that is as stupid as it is wicked. Like, like do you know, do you know how much God has done for you? Do you realize all that you have in Christ, the eternal security of being with God, his presence with you wherever you go? It's not just wicked to not worship him that way. It's actually dumb. You are wasting it. This is, this is just common sense to give and serve and live in a way that just sets yourself back here and gives to God and others. Um, I was shoveling my driveway uh, over the winter time, which is something that I do from time to time in Wisconsin. And 
Uh, I got to the end of it, and as many of you know, you get to the end of your driveway, you kind of know the plow's gonna come through and just put a nice big wall of snow up, right, where you just got done, you know, shoveling it all. And so I had this little debate in my head, and it kind of went like this. It was me talking to myself and I, which I do a lot. Um, and it went like this. Hey, um, I'm just going to push the rest of my snow on the end of this driveway that I have. I'm just going to push it in the street. And I found out later that that's illegal. You can't, you're not supposed to do that. But I didn't know at the time. So I started to push all my snow into the street from the very end of my driveway. Because I'm like, you know, the, the government thing, the local, they're just going to move it down the road. And then I looked in my neighbor, like, what I realized is, like, the amount of snow that I'm piling into the street not only isn't the best for traffic, but uh, it was eventually going to get pushed down and actually make his wall at the end of his driveway just a little bit bigger than usual. And uh, I I was thinking about this, but I'm still doing it. I'm just shoveling all the snow out into the street. And uh, I had this moment where I said in my head, I just said, you know, it's not my problem. That's not my problem. And that's where like Jesus like rudely interrupted me. Like I, I was having, I didn't invite him to that, you know, meeting. And he just showed up with all his Bible verses. Because that's how Jesus talks to people. He's, there's no audible voices. He just, that's weird. He talks to people through God's word, the things he's already said, Jesus's words. All the Bible verses came rushing back into my mind as if to hear Jesus just saying Hey, Bri, uh, you know what uh, wasn't my problem? <laughs> your sin. The mess of your selfishness and the depths of your depravity, that was, man, that, that wasn't my problem. But, um, you know, I didn't come into the world to condemn you for your problems and stuff. You know, I came into the world to save you. I made your problem my problem. That's what I did. I made it. My problem, and uh, the truth is, is it was very expensive. It cost me everything. It cost me my life, and uh, I'm still it still cost me a lot of grace. It still cost me daily forgiveness for you, and um, and it'll there'll be more to come. But it's expensive, and here's the thing, though, is like um, I'm because I not only conquered your world's problems, I conquered all the world's problems. I, I you are going to have from because now I'm with you, you will never have a problem that I haven't conquered and that I can't conquer if you let me have it. And I go with you wherever you go. So Brian, go out and find yourself some problems. Go out and make the snow in everybody's driveway your problem because here's the deal, wherever you go, I go with you and I solve problems, I fix problems. It's me, not you, but I go with you. So make it your problem. That's what being compassionate is. It's looking at other people's problems and saying, it's not my problem, but I'm going to make it my problem now. So that's what it is. It's not about saying, how do I avoid and how do I retain and keep myself safe? It's actually about how can I think of other people above me, even if it's inconvenient. That's what it's about. Because here's the deal. We have in view of all God's mercies, in view of everything he's done, we're fools. We're not just, that's not just selfish and wicked. It's dumb, man. You have everything. Go make something your problem this week. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, man, what? I got kids. Like, don't I have to be a good steward of that? Like, you know, I'm a dad too, right? And, you know, I think about that. You know, my kids depend on me and they didn't sign up for, so can we be reckless with our compassion? You know, what about all those Bible verses that talk about like being a good steward? 
You know, what about that? And, and you're right. You are right. You need to, listen to me. If God gave you kids, you need to be a wise steward of that. There's no verses in the Bible that say be reckless and foolish. <laughs> There's none of that. You need to be wise. Be a wise steward of your resources financially. Make plans. Store up for the winter. They're, those are important principles that are in the Bible. But let me tell you something. If you go through this whole crisis, man, you go through this whole crisis and you in no way um, do anything to think selflessly and compassionately about those that are vulnerable and in need or weak. I just, I want to tell you, you're going to give something to your kids and the people that you steward. You're, you're going to give something to them more than just financial, more financial security or, you know, um, maybe a little bit safer setting in your, in your world. You're going to give them more than that materially. You're going to give them some spiritual lessons. So I thought about it. I wrote down, like, what would Adeline get from her dad if all I did is think about protecting her and, and kind of like gripping tightly all these things. And I wrote them down. This is what Adeline would get from me if she watched this whole crisis go by and I just, I didn't really think about selfless compassion. Number one, she would learn this from her dad, that it'll be up to me alone to provide for my needs when I go into crisis. That's a lesson I'm gonna show her. It's up to you. You gotta just figure it out. She'll learn that family is defined by blood alone instead of the fact that God says that whosoever believes in me, I give the right to become children of God. It was his blood that actually made us his family. But she'll, she won't get that. She'll get family is defined by blood alone. You take care of your family first. She'll learn that seeking control as much as possible is how you deal with crisis. Grip tighter the things that are in your hands and not God. Just grip the things and, the, and whatever you have. Grip that tighter. And she'll learn this, that what comes to me is for me only. What comes to me is for me only. That's what she'll learn. Um, Jesus uh, says that, you know, if you really try to grip your life um, really hard, it's kind of this principle, you kind of end up losing it. it. Says this in Luke. And if worst case scenario comes, man, and you, you, like, you feel like, man, I'm losing so much of my livelihood, I'm losing so much of my lifeness, I feel life going out of me, what Jesus says is that at some point, actually, you're gonna realize the whole time, I was saving it. You were, you were participating in my saving of those parts of your life. So even if the worst case scenario happens, Jesus seems to imply that it's actually not that bad. You see, even if you're not a Christian, um, and just pretend for a minute that, just say, okay, what if Christians are right? Just for a second, what if the Christians are right? Here's, if Christians are right, here's what we believe, that when you die, you'll be conscious before your creator. There'll be some moment where you'll have your wits about you and you'll be looking at your, your creator and your maker and he will address you personally for the first time audibly. That's gonna happen. And we, we believe that um, he's gonna talk to you, he's gonna address you in your life and I, I don't know how long it'll be before that happens. Like if you're gonna kind of be conscious after you die for like five minutes before he talks to you, I don't know. You know, I don't know if it'll feel like an hour. I don't know if it'll feel like a long time. I don't know if it'll feel instant, but you will be conscious. Christians believe that. We believe that we will see and talk to God face to face for the first time when we die. He's gonna, he's gonna address us. And in that moment when you wait, like I don't know how long it is, but there'll be a list of things that are important to you in your head, I'm sure, while you're waiting with bated breath for what your creator is about to say for the first time to you audibly, there'll be a list of things that, are, that matter to you. 
And I promise you that at the top of that list will be whatever is important to God. <laughs> whatever is important to this, this being, this, this, the, the, the creator of the universe, whatever is important to him is gonna be at the top of your list, wondering that question. And I promise you, whatever's number two might as well not even be on the list. It'll be so far down when you're standing eyeball to eyeball with your creator. And the cool thing is, is God, actually Jesus, tells us how that's gonna go down. He kind of gives us a picture of how that's gonna go, if you've ever wondered. In Matthew chapter 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. The Son of Man was the term he used to describe himself. He said, all the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will be seated and he, and he, will, se and it says, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And then the king, Jesus is referring to himself here because he's the one on the throne. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. These righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did, when, or a stranger show you hospitality? When did we see you naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for or to me. And I know this is the part where if, you know, if you've read it before, you're a Christian, you might say, well, you know, I know that those things don't get you into heaven. And you're right. You know, get, there's a long list of people that give generously. and do, it, it, Those things aren't what get you into heaven. Works don't get you into heaven. You're right. But if you're saying that right now, <laughs> to try to get you out from underneath the call on your life to give generously to those in need and to have selflessness and compassion for those in need, if that's why you're saying that, then I'm just telling you, I would be concerned because let me tell you something, that's what's gonna go down when you're eyeball to eyeball with your maker. Do you really wanna just kind of brush that aside? In view of all God has done for you, why would you not wanna, why would you miss out on that? To be able to be there and to say, Lord, my best stuff that I did in life, anonymous, it was for you. I wasn't doing it for any other reward, all of it. And the prayer that you might pray right now by like, God, I, I'm, I've given so much away. I've been so compassionate. I've given so much away, but I'm in, I'm in really dire straits right now. I'm struggling right now because of this compassionate generosity. Let me tell you something. That problem you have right now, on that moment, the most important moment in your whole existence, while you wait for what God's gonna say to you for the first time, that problem you're having, that prayer you might be praying right now because you gave all the things away and you were so generous, that problem is gonna become your greatest blessing on the most important moment of your existence. Live for the moment, that moment. Live for that moment. And don't miss the chance for God to renew <laughs> one of the most important parts of your story and your purpose, not just in this crisis, but in this world. 
Let's pray. Jesus, I pray right now that you would begin to renew. You would begin to renew an urgency, a passion uh, to serve, to love, to give generously so you get all the credit. But God, be welling up in people that urgency only from the place in view in light of all that you've done for us. Lord, while the rest of the world gives because it's their religion, because it's the morally logical thing to do, because they feel obligated to, Christians, Lord, I pray we would give because of all you've done for us. We would give because we have everything in you. That's why we give. So Lord, I pray that that would be true of everybody in, the, in their living rooms, in their homes, in their places of work, in the community. I pray that you would bring your presence and nearness in the midst of brokenness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.